This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. A terrorist attack took place in Israel. Joel, Yosef's wife, was killed in a terrorist attack with three out of their five children. And now he has to come back to Paris to visit with family. And you know what's going on in Paris. The whole town is talking that Rabbi Levi is coming to town. It's been a few months since the wife passed away and everyone's proposing the same idea. Would you like to go out with him? And she says, this time I'm not going to make the mistake. And guess where the date is? The same hotel. And she's sitting there waiting and you wouldn't believe this sight. Comes through the front door a man wearing a Hamburg which is the hat of the Rosh Hashiva, a long frock, and she's like in shock. And they sit down, and they talk about life, it's been 17 years. And he tells her, you, I owe you everything. Because of you, I became who I became. My wife used to go daven at the Koisel every day, so you should get a shidduch. Because you were responsible for my life. And she started to cry. And she said, You had mercy on me, and I never had mercy on you. Two or three dates went by. Proposal, marriage. On the day of their wedding, he gave her a souvenir. He said, I want you to put this inside our photo album. The first kippah he ever wore. Right in the photo album. They went on to have two children. Got to be able to sense someone's potential. Especially when you see an earnest desire. Okay, so we went through the first area of dating. Here's a very important area. Give of yourself so you can open a window to your soul. Now I'm not telling you to do this on the first date. But as you date... Date three, date four, date five, expose your vulnerability a little bit. A Syrian girl came to see me in New York for dating help. She went out 33 times with one guy and never got deep at all in anything. I asked her, what's important to him? I don't know. What does he want to do with his life? I don't know. Everything was, I don't know. What did you talk about for 33 dates? Needless to say, he was gone within 24 hours. He said, when we created our top 10 list, he didn't match anything that she needed. No GPS, totally lost in the forest. So it's important, when you share your emotions, you receive positive feedback. You've got to take a little bit of a risk. I'm not saying saying something which is extraordinarily, you know, uh, threatening or anything, but to give an idea who you are, what you represent, what you're looking for in life. That's important. Okay. Discuss personal issues and ask yourself, is he open, is he honest? Is he erecting walls and keeping you out of places in his life? You cannot marry someone unless you have developed an open and honest environment between both of you, with nothing hidden.
Again, dating conversations must progress from the mundane to the deep. How long can you talk about the weather? From the obvious to more dreams, goals, children, yeshiva, midos. What's your Shabbat's table going to look like? What are his friends like? What are her friends like? That gives you a great indication of what they're all about. Who is your favorite market share? Who inspires you? What are your goals for the next 5 or 10 years? That's how you flush out the kind of person you're dating with to see if that is integrating with what you need in life. Understand who he is, who she is, their circle of friends, who their confidence are, and what they stand for. Sometimes people feel that they're not getting any closer while they're dating with the person that they're dating with. Here's a suggestion. Complimenting each other helps tear down that barrier. After four or five dates, if, a, if he tells you, you know, he accomplished a certain item, he finished the Masechta, say, wow, that's very nice. So, you know, looking for ways to affirm the other person because self-esteem is vital in a healthy marriage. Strengthening their self-esteem is always one way to get closer to that person. How do I recognize the right person versus the wrong person? This is a didactic part of our class, so listen up. It's a mistake to be lured by outward trappings such as beauty or money. Although physical attraction is absolutely necessary, physical attraction can wear off and then the work begins. The right spouse will help you navigate your way through life. While someone you may be infatuated with can put you and send you down a path that you never intended to go. Too often people forget to take the long-term picture into account. Here's an important question you have to ask yourself. Will this person help me grow? When you choose a husband or a wife for the right reasons, you respect each other, you develop an appreciation for each other, and you're dedicated to each other's dreams and goals. When you look for a life partner, you're concerned with personality, intelligence, financial standing, religious values, family background. A marriage sometimes fails because people don't judge the other person with objectivity. They don't look and see who's in front of them. They project virtues on the person that doesn't exist. Just to get it going and get it moving. Yeah, he's a good learner. Yeah, he's a nice guy. You haven't called, you haven't made any reference checks or nothing. Is your attraction towards that your date based on an objective appraisal of his or her qualities? Or are you projecting virtues where they don't exist, and you, are you ignoring disturbing character flaws? People sometimes close their eyes, unwilling to see what they don't want to see. If you're looking for someone cultured and able and refined, then don't settle for someone who's narrow-minded and crude and lacking in class. If you're searching for someone who's ruchnis, who has spirituality, then don't settle for someone who talks about money 24-7. If you want a warm hub... And a happy and accepting spouse, don't settle for someone who's depressed, self-centered, or judgmental. Loving him or her won't magically erase 
their bad qualities. However, being cognizant of the fact that he or she has flaws does not mean you have to reject him or her. Does not mean you have to reject. Every one of us has faults. Look at the, the person's flaws in relation to the positive qualities and do a cheshpin. If the positive qualities far outweigh the negative ones and there's nothing specific that annoys you, it looks good. When my last daughter got engaged, her two best friends broke up within weeks of their wedding. Both of them. Both of them broke up because both of them had the same thing. Each of them had something individual that was annoying them about the boy and couldn't stop thinking about it. So, if there's something very specific that annoys you, you have to have a talk with a Rav, dating coach, mentor, or maybe. Otherwise, if there's nothing that really annoys you terribly and the positive outweighs the negative, and you have six out of your ten qualities on your top ten list met, Vita, go forward. What am I looking for? Search for a person who could be your friend. Someone you can talk to. Someone you can confide in. Someone who listens to you. Someone who understands you. Someone who values your opinion. Someone who can, you can trust and whose character you admire. Someone with a healthy self-esteem. Someone who knows how to protect and appreciate and respect your boundaries. Experience has taught us something you all know. The apple does not fall far from the tree. Look at the family. What's the family like? Healthy homes produce good, healthy, well-adjusted children. Is, are there any issues in that home? Instabilities. Ask yourself the question, and this is a very important question. Will he bring out the best in me? And will he, allow, he or she allow me to be comfortable with myself? Or do I have to fake them out all the time because I'm constantly trying to win rapport with him. Be aware of incongruent behavior. What is that? He tells you one thing, but he does something else. He claims he goes to Vaisikin every day. So why are you in bed every day at 9 a.m.? Make sure that what he says or she says and what they do correspond. And here's a bunch of questions. Is he or she emotionally needy? They're always on top of you. Are they lovable and loving? Are they complimentary? Or do they frequently criticize? I had a girl come to me who's living in Muncie from Australia that had the very same thing. He goes, he's nice, but he's always criticizing everyone when we're on dates. Criticizes the waitress, criticizes the maitre d'. These are red flags. Pay attention to them. I told her he's not for you. She gave the ring back. Next. Watch out for a person who believes he's never wrong, who blames you for everything, and never apologizes for any misdeed. Examine every aspect of their personality and ego to decide how will this affect you? Are they generous? Are they kind and considerate? I gotta share an amazing story with you. Ruchi Gradowitz, true story, was engaged in Yerushalayim to a nice boy. And he wanted to decide where to make the chasana. 
So her father was, you know, middle of the road, Balabas, he wasn't making that much money, but you know, a chasen is a chasen, it costs money. So they started to go looking at holes, and he went to Sasson Vesimcha Hall in Yerushalayim, the name has been changed, and they walk into the hall, Benny the general manager welcomes them at the front door, and he says, hello Rabbi Gradowitz, would you like to look at the big room or the small room? So she's pulling her father's, yanking his father's her jacket. Abba, Abba, I really want the big room. I want my friends to be comfortable. I want them to be able to dance. But it's hard, you know. He worked up the numbers. It's very tight for me. It's, it's a lot. And they went and looked at the small room and they looked at the big room and he sees his daughter, you know. He wants to make her happy. And it's a little hard to him, but he says, you know what, okay, we'll tie in our belts, we'll figure it out. Hashem will help. Hashem Yazor. And he signed the contract for the big room. And now a few months to go. And now there's all the things that we have to get ready. Shreva breakfast, buy all the things that they need to buy. Clothing, etc. Get ready to outfit the apartment. When two weeks before the wedding, there's a phone call. Shalom. Ken Mizeh. Shem Shali Givedet Heber. And Midabedet in Givedet Graduates. Ken. As Mabaya. You know, what's up? And she was like stuttering. The woman couldn't come out with what she wanted to talk to her about. She says to her, Mrs. Gar says, No, what's, how can I help you? Is it true that your daughter is getting married on January 20th? In Sasan Vesimcha Yes, Mazel Tov. She says, my daughter is getting married too that day. We, we, we booked a small hall. But we have this little problem. See, my daughter is so emotionally distraught about being in this second room in a small hall that she hasn't eaten in two weeks she's sick in bed emotionally depressed I have a huge request to ask of your daughter would she trade rooms now I don't think any of you girls would want that as a nisayan whoa that's a big one for a kala to swap rooms so she says, wow, you hit me with a massive request. And I can't answer that. I have to talk to my daughter. Okay. So she hangs up the phone. She tells her husband. They call in, Ruchi, Ruchi. Very interesting phone call we just got. And what happened, Abba Ima? They told her the story. There's this girl who's sick in bed. She's getting married the same night you're getting married. And she's feeling heartbroken over the fact that she has the small room. And she's making a huge request of you if you would swap rooms with her. Do you have the koach hanafshi to do that? So she says, Abba Ima, I gotta think about this one. Give me a couple, a couple of days. A couple of days goes by. And she says, I'll do it. Major league willpower. Major league. Okay. The night before the wedding, there's a phone call placed by a major league real estate developer in Yerushalayim to Benny, the general manager. Hi, how are you? Mr. Scharf, how are you? Yossi Scharf, very well-known real estate developer, magnet. He says, Benny, hi, how are you? Yeah, Baruch Hashem, things are good. You know, my, my son is getting married tomorrow in the Citadel. Yeah, Mazel Tov, that's wonderful. You know, I have a minhag. On the night that any of my children get married, I pay for the complete wedding of someone else's. 
So do you have anybody on the schedule for tomorrow? He looks and he sees, yeah, I have the big room and the small room. Well, I guess, I guess I'll take the small room because they probably could use my help more. And the next night, they're taking pictures, taking pictures. Rabbi Gradowitz with his Nuchasan and his daughter. When the general manager approaches him, he says, Rabbi Gradowitz, I have to talk to you. We have, a, we have something important came up. So he turned white as a ghost. What happened? Did the check bounce? My check to you? He said, no, 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 no. Come into my office. He takes the check, rips it up. Rabbi Gradowitz, <clears throat> the whole thing's on the house. It's been paid for by an anonymous donor. He wants to pay for the whole thing. Midos! Midos! She was a veteran. She had a critical decision to make. Her Midos shined. And Rabboni Shalom paid her right back. Freebie the whole night. Okay. Look for maturity, look for responsibility. Mature people are committed to working on their marriage. They're willing to give and share without constantly measuring or worrying tit for tat. Love is not about a scorecard. I did for you, so you do for me. No, 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 no. The person that you are dating has to have a positive feeling that he, whatever he does, and you as well, is what we call unconditional giving. Does he communicate well with you? Or she? Do they get what you're saying? Watch out for avoiding behavior. If you see the person avoiding answering questions, or doesn't want to reveal personal information about themselves, or doesn't want to meet your family, a sure sign that they have something to hide. Or he shuts down, or she shuts down, and doesn't want to listen to you because they're so self-absorbed in what they have to say. If he arrives late all the time, if he keeps you waiting, if he can't wait peacefully for a table at a restaurant, if he fights with the maitre d', if he complains that the restaurant is not nice enough, if he's more concerned about his car than you, if he cuts off someone in front of him while he's driving, or if the plans get messed up, and when you arrive, they didn't reserve your table as was hoped, did he lose it, did he lose his cool? His reactions and her reactions reveal a wealth of well-kept secrets about them. So be careful because when you date, you are on a treasure hunt looking for clues. Pay attention. Does he or she scream or use inappropriate language? Or do they accept problems with calm and sensitivity? Does he or she retain anger for a long while? Or are they able to forget it and move on? Do they easily bounce back and think straight after having suffered a setback? These reactions are excellent indicators which will help you decide if this is the right person for you or not. I gave you a lot of Q&As. So try to go back to Torah anytime. If you're taking notes, it's good. And think, think into these ideas. Is he rigid or is she rigid? Are they difficult to live with? Or are they well balanced and chilled and flexible? Little sensitivities tell a bigger story. If you're seated in a restaurant and you're right under the air conditioning vent, does he ask to change the table so you can be more comfortable? Does he offer his, his jacket? 
Pay close attention to how he talks about his family. What kind of relationship he talks he has with his parents, he or she have with their parents. Don't dismiss anything. Notice how he acts when he thinks no one's watching him. Everything is observable. And eventually, people always ask me, how will I know about the real truth about him? Well, if you pay attention to the questions that I ask you, and you date long enough, eventually they let their cards down. Eventually you see who the real person is. Susie left to go to the ladies' room. Yaakov berated the waiter in front of her friends who were in the restaurant. Later, when Susie was told by her friends how Yaakov embarrassed the poor waiter, she said, ah, you're, you're exaggerating. She married him. Found herself married to a guy who was critical, angry all the time, and divorced him a few, months, a few years later. Be careful, like I said before, if someone has a terrible temper, who bashes others. Be on guard with anyone who's cheap with his money, his time, or his attention. If you're at the bottom of the person's list, don't accept that. Try to learn about his social life. What are his friends like? Friends are a major influence on a person's thoughts and behavior. You can tell a lot about a person by observing who they choose as their friends. That's very important. If he, if he or she, let's say he, keeps quality friends, that's a great indicator that the person is high quality himself. Marriage is a lifelong commitment, so it's important to know the challenges that you face. Now, you have to keep an eye on these things, to so be on the lookout. We should never know from it, but it's important that we just have to make a little comment, be on the lookout for addictions, God forbid, emotional issues such as depression, OCD, issues we have to keep on the lookout for. It's very important. You never know. Religious beliefs are another important area to explore. Does he share your hashkafa? And does he plan to have as much religion in his day-to-day life like you would have? Religious differences are way too important to overlook. I always tell everyone, you need to be somewhere in the same playing field, religiously. It's even better when the girl is more religious than the guy. Because the girl has an easier time to influence the boy to become better. Does he have a steady job? If you're planning to marry a person who's working, do you have the same standard of living in mind? Does he plan to work, learn, or combine both? Do you respect his level of education? Does he work well with others? Is he willing to work hard? Is he intellectually compatible with you? Is he bright enough for you? Is he sharp enough? Does he have street smarts? All important. Again, are you comfortable with each other's lifestyle? And that means a lot in terms of the finances. Very important. Here's what I tell girls to do, and boys too. That I've, I'm a very big believer of the gratitude approach and talking to Hashem. That is to say thank you every day for 50 things, create a list, 
can write it up once, say thank you for 50 things, and include on that list, thank you Hashem that I'm single. I accept that it's the best thing for me. Let me read you a story why. Anytime you have a difficulty in your life, and you haven't gotten what you want, the most important thing is to thank Hashem for it, and then ask Him in a certain way. I'll show you. This is a story that Rav Shalom Arush writes. And I'll translate it for you in Hebrew. A woman came to me who could not have children for a very long time. And she told me, she's tried everything. Tefillah, Tshuvat, Tzedakah, Segulos, everything. Even medical treatments. Nothing is working. And they're at the brink of despair. She says to the rabbi, Will I never see a salvation? Will I never marry to have a child? I said to the woman, Forget about the schoolers. Don't even pray a lot. But stand every day. After you daven for 15 minutes and say, Thank you. That until today I have no kids. It's the best thing for me that I have no children until today. Why? Only through not having children will I achieve my tikkun, which calls for me until today not to have children. Work on having a good eye. Be happy every time you hear news that someone had a child or someone got engaged. And here's what I want you to do. Rakasof. At the end, ask Hashem the following. Master of the universe, grant me my soulmate as a request of mercy because I deserve nothing. And I promise you, you'll have children. She had six. Shalauti, so she asked me a question. Why is your system better than mine? I prayed, Bachiti, I cried, I pleaded to Hashem. I answered her. Here's the difference when a person davens and then has a little bit of a seder in gratitude for the very problem. When you say thank you, what you're actually demonstrating is emunah, that everything that is happening is for the best. When you have a so-called difficulty in your life, you haven't achieved what you want. That what I'm in now is the best thing for me. And when you say thank you, you're actually demonstrating that God wants my life, miduyak, perfectly, and there's no mistake in shum ta'ut that I have no children or I'm not married until today. And when you say thank you for the, for the status of your life, you're showing imunah that everything is from Hashem and that the only reason that you're not married is kach Hashem rotzeh. And you'll ask Hashem to grant it to you as a request of mercy. Ah, why didn't it work before? Yes, you davened. But because in the back of your mind, you'd look at your friend who had a child, you were upset. And now you had complaints against Hashem a little bit. So now your tefillah goes up to Shemaim, it gets hijacked by these mekatrigim, who bring it to Hashem and say, look at this, she went to the bathroom today, no dialysis, she's well fed, he's well fed, he has a job promotions, travel, and then they have tainus on us, pull the file. 
And we've been too nice to them. You know, last week they were on the interstate, they almost got into a car accident, but we made sure that the last minute they turned their eyes and they were able to see the car. They're not appreciating all that we do for them. I'll show you how I used it. You know, I was trained as a, as a foot surgeon. And I was in practice in Miami. One day, and when I was in New York for the summer, one day, I get my bill, $48,000. My nurse stole my credit card and went on a $48,000 buying spree. And now I was being sued by Capital One for the $48,000. I called them up, I said, she stole the car. It didn't help matters that her name was Lisa Cohen. But anyway, I told him, not related to me. She was a fry girl, not religious at all. I said, it's not me. Usually they just drop the matter, right? No, no. A few days later, there's a knock on the door. A man comes from court, summons a complaint. You're being sued. Okay. So I figured, you know what? I'll be pro se. I learned a little bit of law here and there in my life. I'm going to be my own lawyer. And I'm going to go in and tell the judge. I grabbed the subway in Brooklyn to go to downtown Manhattan to the courthouse. The whole way, thank you Hashem, it's for the best. 200 times. I get to court. There's a couple hundred cases. You don't just don't hear your case. They hear a whole room like this size. So you're in the afternoon docket. That means you're with 400 people. And I was like 165. Okay, number one is called, number two is called, number five is called. They get up there, the judge decides the case, hits the case out. It's a five, six hour thing, you're sitting there. Finally, Cohen versus Capital One. So I approach the, the bench. Your Honor? Yes. Okay, Capital One. Capital One, where's your lawyer? This is a bank that probably hires $2,000 an hour lawyers. They can't find the lawyer. Five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one, case dismissed. That's how you use the power of gratitude. You take a problem, you say thank you for the problem, because whenever we have an issue in our life, it means Hashem is trying to get our attention. When you say thank you, you're acknowledging, Rebbeinu Shalom, you got my attention. All the way. And just ask as a Bakashas Rachman. It's an amazing tool. Consider it. Very, very helpful. Second. Let me close with two with one small story. I recently lectured at Landers College for Women in the city. All good from girls. I read them a story. How I stopped searching for Mr. Cool and I finally found Mr. Wright. Interview with Goldie. Growing up in Florida, as the second youngest in a family of six. I watched my brothers and sisters marry one by one. I eagerly awaited for my turn to start dating. Just after my 19th birthday, my parents started searching for me. I never would have imagined that I'd be dating for over 10 years. To be honest, back then, I had an overly romantic vision of marriage. I yearned for the perfect wedding and wanted to find my prince charming. Instead of focusing on what core qualities I needed in a husband, I was fixated on finding the macher. Social, handsome, well-liked, who everyone would be impressed with. If you guys recognize the Enter Syndrome here, we've learned it before. It didn't help matters that my parents put me on a very big pedestal. They wanted the very best for their little girl. Out of love and concern, they scrutinized the boys that I dated, searching for flaws and imperfections. No one was ever good enough. They rejected most of the Bachram even before I even went out with them. 
I always figured I would marry the first guy I dated, like a few of my brothers and sisters had. So when the first boy I went out with was not interested in going out on a second date, it felt like my world had come crashing down. My bubble quickly burst as several boys I dated indicated their lack of interest in continuing. That year and in the years that followed, the majority of the girls that had gone to school and seminary with got married. But at 23, when my best friend Bracha, who was like a sister to me, got engaged, I'll admit, I started to really struggle. I rejoiced with Bracha, but as we celebrated at her lechayim, her vort, her wedding, her sheva brachas, I felt like I was left behind. As sad and alone as I felt, her marriage was a turning point for me. I started to reflect on why Shaduchim were not going easily. Now listen up, these are lessons that she teaches us that are worth millions. The more I reflected, the clearer it became. I had been putting far too much value on what others thought, and it came from a place of insecurity. Baruch Hashem, I recognized that if I kept searching for Mr. Perfect instead of Mr. Right for me, I would never have found my husband. I had to stop and take the time to figure out who I was and what I wanted. I started with working with a dating coach who helped me explore the source of my insecurities and empowered me to worry less about what others thought and more what was important for me to be happy. It became clear that I had been overpowering on my dates rather than expressing my softer, more feminine side. So I started doing more practical and spiritual hishtadas. I traveled to Eretz Yisrael, davened the Kvarim, poured my heart out at the Kosal. I joined the healing groups where single women davened for each other. I took care of myself, that's important. I exercised regularly, I ate well, I kept busy with work and friends. Most importantly, I discovered how to be happy with myself and learn to be vulnerable enough to express my softer, more feminine side. One day, a few weeks after I turned 30, my cousin called me and suggested Shimmy. He described him as a kind, confident man who knew how to get things done. But when I searched him on social media, this is the big one today, he looked so nerdy in his pictures. Nothing like the cool guy I was interested in, so now I was torn. What's more, he was 26, four years younger than me. But I learned an important lesson in my 10 years of dating. A minor age difference doesn't really matter. If he was the right one, so what if he's a little younger? And if we had great connection and mutual attraction, so what if he wasn't the machra I'd envisioned marrying? At 30, it was crystal clear. I had to build a home with the right person, whether or not he was Mr. Cool or not. So when I met Shimmy, I was at ease. Being with him felt comfortable and familiar. Girls, you heard me, with all, I, I brought down a lot of these thoughts tonight already. I'm just cementing them now with these great stories. So I felt secure enough to express my feminine side. Shimmy was capable and self-assured, so I didn't feel I had to take the reins. Baruch Hashem, just after five dates, ten dates rather, Shimmy and I got engaged. And after 11 long years of dating, I finally became a Kala. And believe it or not, I didn't introduce Shimmy to my overprotective parents until after we got engaged. So what lessons can be learned from my story? Number one, don't be influenced by the opinions of other people. For years I made the mistake of letting fear of what people think guide my decision making in Shaduchim. Don't fall into that trap. And remember, you're the one that has to live with that person, no one else. Had I still been hanging on to my idea of getting a macher, 
I might have let my perception of Shimi's nerdy pictures influence my decision. And I would have missed out on meeting the most special person in my life. And two, don't overpower your dates. For all those strong women out there, there's nothing wrong with being intelligent, confident, or strong in your opinions. These are tremendous qualities. But don't make the mistake of overpowering the men that you date. That's very important. Share in the conversations, but maintain that feminine side. Show an interest in, in hearing his opinions, even if you don't agree with them. And it's important to know that everyone can change. I'll close with this story. <sighs> Professor Bennett decided to discover what makes a millionaire. He wanted to know what makes a millionaire, what are the qualities of a millionaire. So he gathered 250 PhD students in the university and he said to them, it's taken me a year, I've assigned each one of you to go live with a certain millionaire. In six months, come back and give us your report of why your guy became a millionaire. Six months went by, and now they come back. And everyone gets up, one after another, to address the audience, and tells them almost the same exact findings. My guy, he's ruthless. My guy is mean. My guy will crush anyone to get to the top. My guy is being sued or suing someone. And it's going like that, one, two, 10, 20, 50, 100, 200, until they get to 249. PhD candidate 249 comes up and he says, my guy has no enemies. He's not suing anyone, he's not being sued, he's a friendly guy. And now the professor is stuck. How could it be? Everyone fell neatly into the same you know, type of profile, but 249. We've got to send another group out to 249. Right? He was a pharmacy magnate. His name was Bigelow. And he decided to go to his house which is situated right there in front of the Hamptons, gorgeous on the ocean in Long Island. You know, Mr. Bigelow, you were part of a study of what makes a millionaire. But something's wrong. All of our students came back with the same findings. And you are completely outside the curve. You're not suing anyone, you're not being sued, you have no enemies, you didn't crush anyone to get to the top. He stops them, he goes, hold on. That's exactly who I was. That's exactly how my father raised me. Son, set your goal and crush anyone who gets in your way to get to that goal. And that's exactly how I behaved until a year ago. Myself and 20 other CEOs, multi-billionaires, American CEOs, decided to take a little trip to Europe to expand our business, looking for new markets. We're done. We said, you know, we have three extra days. Why don't we just hop over to Israel, startup nation? where we met with some, with some investors. We had an extra day, so we hired a tour guide. And he took us to Yerushalayim. And most of these people are not religious, the CEOs. And he goes, I tell, he tells them, I saved the best for last. I'm going to take you to the biggest institution of Hebrew learning in the world, the Mir Yeshiva. And so he tells them what happened. Here I am with these CEOs of American companies, and he takes us into the Mir Yeshiva, and we see men learning the Talmud everywhere. There's no chairs. They're learning on stairs, underneath stairwells, everywhere. And no one even looked up at us. No one even admired us. You'd think they would be like, wow, look at these CEOs of American companies. And then the tour guide says, I saved the best for last. Let's go meet the CEO. Nassim Zvi Finkel, Allah Shalom. 
So they walked up to his apartment, expect the dean of the university should have a bird's eye gorgeous condo overlooking the Gosel, right? They walk in, old furniture, old shank, from everywhere, broken down living room, furniture and all that. He says, gentlemen, have a seat. How'd you like the tour of my school? Wow. So Bernie Marcus, who's the head of Home Depot, big chain of uh, home you know, stores, he says, Rabbi, how do you do it? How do you run such a place with such precision? 8,000 students. I can't do that with all my stores. So he tells him, because today you came to see what a human being looks like. He asked him a question. How, long, how much space would it take to be able to have a college for 8,000 students? He told them, I'll give you the answer, about 750,000 meters. Here you have 3,000 meters. That means every student gets half of a meter. How many teachers would you need for 8,000 students? Hundreds! Maybe five, six hundred? Here we have 20 rabbis. And how many people would you need to run this whole empire? $40 million budget. A dean, assistant deans. Here we have one Rosh Hashiva. He says, gentlemen, today you saw the difference between an animal and a human being. So, Mr. Bigelow says to the investigators, when I heard that, I came back and I said to myself, I don't have to be mean and vicious and cunning. I could be nice and friendly. I could change. And it could change. And I could be someone else. And that's my message to you today. Look within yourselves. Grow. Become better. Dig deep, develop your middles, develop your talents, develop your skills. And it's my, I give you my utmost blessing. We should come back here next year. And everyone here should be a chassan and kala. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.